Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Chat with the Designers, your live online interactive weekly magazine for hams, homebrewers, and experimenters across the fruited plains. This is your host, George N2APB, along with co-host Joe N2CX, and a returning guest host of uh, Dave AD7JT. And tonight we have a very special episode this time, and we hope that everybody's going to really uh, enjoy it. The topic is Automatic Level Control Techniques for DDS-Based Designs, ALC for DDS. Got to keep up with the acronyms here, of course, and we'll get things started in just a moment um, for the program. What we wanted to do is uh, kind of ramp up to the program start by maybe starting off with a couple of news items that we have found to be interesting in the ham brewing world, and especially one as it relates to our NAT, the Network Analyzer Terminal, the NAT project that we talked about during the last episode. And there uh, was some activity on the PHSNA group, the group that has developed the scalar network analyzer that the NAT connects into. They found themselves a Bluetooth device, a, um, a Bluetooth uh, transmitter and receiver pair that is able to connect to a terminal and to a host and eliminate the cable essentially in between the two. And that turns out that it looks like it's going to be really nice and appropriate for the PHSNA measurement system that we've been talking about. And Dave and I have been thinking about that as far as uh, its use with the NAT. So eliminating cables is always kind of a fun thing. Fewer cables means fewer problems along the way. So uh, we'll have a, a link for the Bluetooth device, uh, the transceiver pair, uh, very small devices that can fit inside existing equipment to connect them. We'll have that um, on, uh, on, the, on the whiteboard uh, after the show. So when you check on things there, you can, you can check that out. It's pretty inexpensive as well. Joe, you had, uh, you had a bit of a news item there uh, as well, didn't you? Yes, I did, George. Thank you. Yeah, I'm always looking for um, things to build, neat projects, and uh, particularly things that are uh, put out by clubs. I like to support club projects. <clears throat> In the past, the uh, Four States QRP Club has had uh, some neat projects, uh, including um, a very neat project that I built ooh, several years back. It was called the Magic Box. It was designed by uh, Jim Courchy, K8IQY. Those have been around um, QRP circles and homebrewing um, in the last couple of years know of uh, Jim Courchy's Magic. The Magic Box was a, uh, a TR switch, transmit receive switch, with a, a bunch of fancy functions built in to be used with individual um, transmitters and receivers receivers to, uh, to give you uh, automatic uh, uh, transceive capability. Well, now, uh, Four States QRP has come out with another Corchi semi-kit called the Dream Boards. These are printed circuit boards that um, can be used for various um, homebrew transmitter functions. Uh, Jim lists with the uh, project some suggested circuitry, uh, including a number of functions. You don't have to build exactly what he wanted or what he designed in there, but uh, the capability for a lot of uh, different homebrew transmitter projects and having the pre-made printed circuit boards makes it easy to uh, build these up. Uh, I don't have the four states QRP uh, URL. Perhaps someone else can post that, but uh, it's it's uh, it's a good, uh, the dream boards are a good addition, something neat to have. I have a, a set of them. Don't know what I'm going to do with them yet, but uh, like I say, I always like to support uh, club projects and particularly stuff that's uh, designed by uh, Jim Corchy, K8IQY, uh, is always something to have around because it's good stuff. Back to you, George. Thank you, Joe. That's uh, really good stuff. I think we'll get that, that uh, those links up there uh, onto the whiteboard as well. I'm going to check into the dream boards myself. Always nice to have some PCBs around and you can find your own parts and stuff them along the way. Hey, while we're at a slight pause here, can somebody go on up? Oh, I think we might have found. Good. Um, there were some people that seemed to be stranded up on the OpenHP SDR folder just above us. And uh, well, Jack is still up there. I'm hoping he knows how to join us down here in QRP Homebrewing. Um, Dave, have you heard any news about the NAT project from last week? And uh, are people putting this uh, kit together? Or, um, has any, or, or has anybody... Uh, um, been assembling their kit and want to kind of share some of their their experiences here before we get into the main program here tonight. I know that Jack uh, W0FNQ has, I think he's built his, um, but Dave, has there been uh, any progress on, from builders on the NAT device? 
Uh, got one inquiry from, I believe it was W0SA, um, who was building up and had a little problem with his uh, his keyboard, and uh, he worked that out actually by himself, and uh, everything came up working fine. That's that's the only one I've have had uh, any contact with. Okay, good enough. Jack, um, welcome. And have you, uh, did, do I recall right in, in that you were able to build up your NAT board and get it working? Oh, maybe Jack's not uh, kind of turned on yet here, so... Um, I have a couple. Um, I, I've been helping a couple of guys get theirs working. So I think there's maybe about four or five that uh, at least that have announced that they are working. And, and that's great news. Last couple of items to mention here before we rock and roll is uh, Joe had pointed me over to uh, an article, an online article, um, a note, as it were. Um, for somebody who had um, uh, some guidance for reforming capacitors, reforming capacitors um, and reestablishing the dielectric in electrolytic capacitors for capacitors that have long since been sitting idle and dried up. And uh, instead of turning on power to an electrolytic and having it go whack and blow the can off and, and whatever, um, there is a technique that this article described and uh, very slow, not just slowly bringing up the voltage, but current limiting uh, the slow increase of voltage. And uh, although it's taking 24 hours, it's working wonderfully on a, on a capacitor, an electrolytic, uh, a triple uh, electrolytic capacitor that I've been, um, that I have in an, an, um, an old receiver that I'm putting together, an old kit, an old Heath kit, HR10B, for a good friend. And um, fresh out of the box, but fresh out of the box uh, capacitors from 1965 or whenever um, have dried up. One capacitor tested just fine and did not need uh, reforming. It applied voltage to it and it was fine. But this one, the triple can, you probably know what they look like in some of the older boat anchors. Um, it's a technique that uh, is working well, as I said, although it takes 24 hours for each section of the uh, capacitor. Uh, but I can very slowly see um, as I um, as time goes on, the, the leakage current is going down, 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 and then it stabilizes at a, a very low level. Um, so I'm increasing voltage every couple of hours, and then over another couple of hours watching the current go down. But when I get done with this, I'll have a good capacitor, a classic new old stock, NOS, and something you got to watch out for, electrolytics. But good stuff. Um, does anybody have any other news before we get into the main program here tonight? Anything happening in QRP land or anything happening in homebrewing, new projects, new products? New uh, new things on the lists. You hear me? Hello, Jack. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, you asked me a question a little bit earlier, and I couldn't find my microphone. It was buried underneath a bunch of papers on my desk. <laughs> that happens. Um, oh, I just uh, had wondered, were you um, one of the fellows that got your NAT working? I, I think you had uh, posted that you did. Yeah, it's uh, working uh, pretty well. Um, I ran into one little glitch with the with the 232 chip. I was going to hook it up directly with 232 to the uh, I put a, a 232 in the PHSNA, uh, and uh, I could communicate pretty well with the PHSNA with the terminal mode and on the computer. But when I tried to do it with the uh, with the NAT, I I couldn't get it to work, and I finally traced it down a bad chip. So. Anyway, I, I I did wire it in directly, uh, and uh, it's working uh, as predicted. Oh, that's great news! Really glad to hear that, Jack. And uh, gee whiz, sorry about the bad chip. I don't know, you know, uh, these are all fresh out of the uh, the manufacturer's tape. Um, and I take it that you haven't. I'll get a new one to you, um, but um, you haven't tried a, another chip in its place. Uh, no, I didn't have one. I had some uh, Max 232s, but none of the other uh, other versions that you guys used. Uh, it's not a big deal because I'm kind of thinking I'm going down the path with the Bluetooth. Ah, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Very fine. All right, let's get into tonight's program. Again, um, tonight's program is automatic level control for DDS-based designs. Also known as keeping your DDS output at a constant level for applications that need it. Sort of like uh, measurement applications are, are notorious for wanting to have a constant signal source level such that you can depend on um, an unchanging source and thus un, um, another factor. It is a factor that you can take out of any ambiguity of output results. Um, so locking down a signal is a good thing to do. Many times you don't need... Uh, to have many applications of a DDS uh, do not require absolute um, rock solid, rock, uh, rock steady um, 
level across frequency um, because it might be, for example, driving a, um, a mixer in a, in a radio. In fact, you want to just blast that mixer at maybe 7 dBm, plus 7 dBm, um, at a and a square wave will do just fine as well. But if you put a nice hard signal in there, uh, variance of 3 dB as frequency is ranged probably is not going to be matter is not going to matter that much to an application like that. However, there are applications around. Um, most notably, I think, uh, is the, uh, the NAT and uh, also the Micro 908 uh, antenna analyzer. These are two instruments that require a, a signal source. And um, in different ways, they um, measure the signal after the signal passes through, either physically or logically passes through a device um, under test, be it an antenna, a reflected wave of an antenna, or um, an actual going through a filter, and then measuring the output of that device accurately in order to determine the device's characteristics. Well, if your signal source is changing level as you change frequency, um, you need to compensate for that um, a little bit. We'll talk a little bit downstream here this evening about compensation or calibration techniques for taking care of this condition, but what we wanted to do as a team, Joe and Dave and myself, was uh, talk a bit about the source of that variance and level as that variation in level as frequency is changed from low uh, uh, from low frequency about a megahertz up to 60 megahertz six zero megahertz and uh, we're going to explore some of that but even before we do that and especially nice to have craig aa0zz here craig is your are, are you um, tuned in here and and able to talk tonight find out. I, uh, the first time I tried this, so am I talking okay? Yeah, you're pretty intelligible. It sounds like you're talking into your coffee cup, but uh, a little bit of uh, uh, a little bit of uh, well, coffee. <laughs> it, it sort of sounds a little bit like this, but uh, that's okay. We can hear you. Now, the reason I, I point this out, that, that Craig is here, is that back in 1970, 1997, or it might have been 98 by the time we got to it, Craig and I became enamored, enamored with uh, DDS solutions back in those days. And just before then, there was a DDS. Oh, gosh. We, we actually talked about this whole thing back um, um, ooh, about a year ago here on Chat with the Designers. We had a session on DDS applications or something, um, or Analyze This DDS. And in it, we talked about the very first uh, hobbyist type of um, popular um, expose on the DDS. And it's pictured there on our whiteboard. Um, Oh, good. And I see that uh, Joe has put the address for our whiteboard in the text uh, in the chat section of our TeamSpeak window here. So you can check it out there if you don't uh, know that we're looking at the at the whiteboard. But in QEX for uh, July of 1997, Curtis Cruz, uh, WB2V, uh, made the cover of the uh, that magazine uh, issue with his um, Get Started with DDS. It was uh, the original DDS VFO article that spawned so many projects. And Craig and I were, uh, we kind of collaborated and working on the stuff at the same time. And long story short, Craig had uh, adapted the program. Um, the PIC program to create something that stayed with us all for a very long time, SIGGEN. The SIGGEN program became known as SIGGEN 3. Craig, can you kind of recount just for a few minutes back uh, in circa 1997 the fun that we were having with DDSs? Well, I sure can, George. I hope you can hear me. I'm just using the microphone pickup on my PC. not a real microphone, so I'm sorry about that. <clears throat> yeah, that was uh, definitely a turning point for me, too. Uh, that was just really fun to get into, seeing how DDSs work, and uh, that was my getting back into amateur radio after a hiatus for a number of years, and uh, that was the thing that really got me going, and uh, we collaborated on a number of projects, and that was certainly a fun one, seeing how DDSs work, and uh, so we've done that and uh, played with a lot of applications for that, and then some other, other their follow on DDSs as well, but that's been a good introduction and it's sure been a lot of fun. It sure was, Craig, and uh, thanks for sharing that. Craig went on to uh, uh, to develop uh, DDS-specific uh, solutions using some uh, um, using some of the more advanced DDS is not the uh, the AD9850 or the name AD9851. He you went, uh, Craig. What was the AD9854? Yep, that's it, 9854, and the reason I went to that one is because it had the two channels, I and Q, out uh, with a single input uh, frequency. So you always had the I and Q, and it was always a perfect quadrature for lots of applications. 
Yes, indeed. And Craig made the uh, the cover of Oh gosh, I mean, I, whether it was one of the uh, one of the ARRL mags, um, but then also of uh, Home Brewer magazine and probably Q, Q, QRP quarterly uh, with a product that he calls and still maintains is called the I. Uh, I'll put this down in the references for people to uh, to get to later um the iq pro and i'm looking at a couple of them that i have here on my bench and i still use them and they're really nice uh joe and i kind of went and and stayed down with the uh, um the ad9850 and created the dds30 actually it was just known as the dds daughter card back then um it went up to 30 megahertz and then after uh after when when we grabbed onto the 9851 we created the dds60 which is a small board, and it's pictured a little bit later here on the page. Um, that uh, with an appropriate controller on the on the control lines, uh, it generated a signal that was able to be varied from one to sixty megahertz for the uh, for the DDS60. However, and this leads us to the point for this uh, discussion. And and by the way, there were there were a number of other uh, homebrew DDS solutions and other uh, cards that were made and and such. And it really over the last uh, well, that's now fifteen years, there have been a lot of projects that uh, use DDSs of all different kinds, even uh, uh, the ones that we're talking about here, of course, the AD9850 and 51. But all of them, all of them suffer. Joe, and I'm going to toss it, um, actually, I'm going to toss it over to Dave first. Um, Dave, and Dave's going to talk us through one of the uh, the first blue graph, the picture, a photo of the, uh, the NAT screen, um, and explain that roll-off that we see. All of these DDSs suffer from a roll-off in level. Um, a drop-off in level as frequency is varied from low to high. And there's a reason for that. And we're going to explore that reason here this evening and then subsequently a, a way to uh, take care of that, to accommodate that um, to in order to generate a nice level um, output, stable, uh, constant level output source from a DDS so you can use it in measurement systems. But Dave, uh, AD7JT, can you describe a little bit about what that nice pretty blue screen is there and why the heck is that signal rolling off? Uh, yeah, George. Uh, that, that's, of course, the NAT screen. And what we've done there is, is do a, a, a frequency scan from uh, 1 megahertz to 60 megahertz uh, using a DDS-60. And as you can see, and this is measuring the, the out, output power level. And as you can see, we're starting at just a little bit uh, below minus 7 uh, dBm and winding up uh, darn near down to minus 10 dBm. You know, which is uh, two to one power-wise on it. This this trace was made by uh, using the, the uh, PHSNA setup, and rather than put a well, the device under test was a piece of coax. We just shorted the output from the uh, DDS60 in, into the uh, uh, into the uh, power meter, and then ran the sweep over this range. And this shows the variation that you see in the output. Uh, probably the first part there, the down to six point something minus dB is probably just due to uh, not really setting up the uh, uh, the DDS60 to, to match with the power meter and whatnot. But that doesn't make any difference because we have ways to, to compensate for that. The main thing we're looking for here in these tests is the differences. But with the, if this much difference comes out of the uh, out of the signal generator that we're using, uh, we've got to do something to compensate for that. Um, and so I think that's what we're talking about tonight. Yes, we are. And um, this is an interest of the NAT um, is an interesting device in that it is able to show the level um, of, uh, of a device's response as frequency is swept from low to high. And in this case, just to recap what you said, you connected the DDS output to the input of a powered uh, um, an RF detector an accurate RF detector. So with a short circuit, a zero ohm resistor, this is this is the characteristic of a zero ohm resistor. Clearly, this shows that the signal level source that you're using for stimulus is changing. And uh, um, and again, we're going to discuss ways that we can accommodate that, how we can kind of uh, compensate for that, calibrate it out um, a little bit downstream here in, in the session. And I'm really glad that Jack is with us because he can help us address uh, one of the techniques. And um, and then uh, you and Joe can 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 address one of the others, and as as can I. But Joe, but Joe. Oh, I'm sorry, is somebody else in there? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to, something I forgot to mention. Notice that this trace is not linear, which means you can't do just a simple straight line calibration and, and make everything come out right. Good point. And I think uh, that's going to be an interesting discussion into, unto itself. 
um, because there are multiple causes. Joe, let's let's try to remember this point here. There are multiple causes for roll-off. We're going to talk about one of the reasons, a primary one that is unavoidable without some type of compensation. But there are others, and I alluded to it, such as uh, the characteristics of your amplifier in a system and maybe even the measurement system that you're using to measure the, uh, uh, the power curve itself. So there's always factors that can affect a measured uh, response, and we need to kind of consider them along the way. But Joe, well, let's get into, uh, I, I blithely call this falling off the wagon. Uh, nobody's falling off any wagon here, but the signal level sure is falling off. But can you explain what, what the, you know, are we uh, throwing things out with the kitchen sink or uh, or what, as far as these DDS levels are concerned? What's causing that? Well, as you allude to, there are a number of causes. The, um, uh, the first cause that makes the signal level fall off, the DDS output fall off, is an artifact of the DDS synthesis technique itself. Not going to go into a lot of depth on that. There, there are some um, references here that you can look up uh, and find. But the, the output level basically in the DDS uh, um, synthesis technique used in these chips um, follows a uh, sine x over x roll-off characteristic. And there's a curve here to just show you the general shape to see that it, it rolls off, the output rolls off in amplitude as you go up in frequency. Um, other th and that's that's just the nature of the beast. Um, other things that can add to it are um, the fact that we have an amplifier between the um, um, DDS and uh, the outside world, and we also have a filter. Uh, if the filter is not exactly flat, it can add to uh, the roll-off. If there are some um, uh, some roll-off in the amplifier, that can further make it roll-off. Generally, what that means is the higher you go in frequency, the lower the amplitude is going to be. But there are other secondary effects, as we engineers like to say. Um, for example, um, bypass capacitors and uh, uh, coupling capacitors, distances within the, uh, the frequency range, but they don't act like uh, just capacitors, they have some impedance to them too. And um, that can cause some variation in amplitude uh, in the in the um, in the amplitude response. So the whole the whole uh, ball of wax there means that uh, unless you very carefully choose your parts and in some, some cases uh, select components for what you're doing, there will be a tendency for there to be some uh, uh, variation in the output level with frequency. And um, as we're going to point out tonight, there are a couple ways of uh, dealing with that to um, uh, get the net result of having an amplitude. Uh, in our measurement system, an amplitude that stays relatively constant with the uh, frequency. Go ahead, George. Oh, thanks, Joe. And, and I, another another item you mentioned with the amplifiers, but um, I sort of think that it's it's also the what I what's called the gain product um, bandwidth. Uh, oh man, do I have that backwards? The uh, do I have the right Joe? Say again. Gain bandwidth product. Gain bandwidth product. Okay. It's been a long day at the salt mine. But um, that uh, there are all sorts of anywhere along the signal chain, including your measurement device, is, is an opportunity for the signal to be uh, altered from what ideally it might be. As shown in the picture there, um, along in the, uh, with, with the, the sine X over X, uh, and you see this shaded area, that area, just to kind of point to the area that we're focusing on right now, is the curve. It's that parabolic-like curve up at the top. It goes from 0 dB down to about minus 4 dB and within a shaded area. That's the drop-off that we're talking about um, of the signal level. Now, this system here is being clocked at a, a 300 megahertz. Um, and uh, therefore, the Nyquist limit, as shown there, is 150 um, megahertz. So ultimately, um, the signal that we'll be using, that anybody would be using, would be in that first range. Uh, and it, as the text says from uh, from a, this is from analog devices actually, it's a minus 3.92 decibel drop off over that Nyquist uh, bandwidth. So. Um, um, that's, that's what we see if you were to put a scope on, on now, some, some systems, some, um, DDSs uh, these days, and I was surprised to learn this at whenever, whenever I encountered it, um, compensate for that. They boost the level accordingly to essentially counteract that, uh, that sink roll off and thus achieve more of a steady level output over frequency range. Um, but the, um, the the chips that we've been talking about thus far do not. So we all have been sort of living with that in by some in some way or uh, uh, manner, either just living with it because we don't have to worry about the drop off or calibrating, trying to calibrate it so as to uh, compensate for it with electro external electronic circuits. 
Um, any questions before we kind of continue onward? We're going to focus just for a few moments on the DDS-60 design. Okay. Um, we, we talked about this back in a prior episode, and you can look up those prior episodes of Chat with the Designers back on the homepage, uh, www.cwtd.org. And uh, there is a list of some 67 previous episodes that we've talked about technical topics, operating topics and such. And you'll in there see uh, um, an episode concerning the DDS-60 uh, design analysis. We reproduced it here just to kind of give us a baseline. Um, of course, the boards, the top side and the bottom side of the boards are shown up there. And they're relatively small, um, about, um, oh gosh, uh, an inch by two inches, roughly. I don't know what they are exactly. Um, but of interest now to us is the uh, is the circuit. And I'm just going to brush, broad brush the circuit. Um, you see the DDS uh, chip on the left, the AD9851. In a particular note, I want to point out R10. If you look at um, the DDS chip pin 12, about midway down on the right side of the chip, you'll see pin 12, which is labeled R set R S E T and right there it's it's uh, R10 is connected on it it's a 5.6k resistor to ground we'll come back to that but i wanted to point out what the R set was of course the output comes from the DDS chip through a low pass filter um in this uh in this case it's a seven element uh um filter that uh, is designed to roll off the roll off the response uh not allow any frequencies um actually greatly attenuated frequencies above the uh, the Nyquist uh, limit, the Nyquist bandwidth, so we don't get any of the aliasing and the artifacts that show up actually in the in the uh, sine XRX plot just above that. Then it goes into an amplifier pair U1A and U1B, and uh, um, is presented to the RF output pin P1 pin six uh, through a 51 ohm resistor and um, a 0.1 microfarad capacitor. Again, those, I especially mentioned those because we'll get to them, uh, discussing them in a moment. But that's essentially the chain. Um, some external controller connects to the three blue dots on the, uh, the I.O. pins on the left-hand side, data, load, and clock. And it serially programs the DDS chip to generate um, the desired frequency. And there's a protocol for that, um, for that data stream. And it can change very fast. It can change the frequency of the DDS very fast. Um, and then the DDS outputs its raw frequency through a low-pass filter, which takes off the aliasing, uh, aliased artifacts, uh, the replicated signals, and uh, we call them spurs and other kinds of garbage that's uh, higher up in frequency to create a nice signal presented to the, ampli the RF amplifier. The AD8008 is the chip we use there. And through the 51 ohm resistor, the, C, uh, the C7 capacitor, the RF output. And this circuit has been in use for ages and lots of different applications. They're in medical instrumentations. They're in all sorts of sonic, ultrasonic, and uh, uh, measurement devices and, and medical types of applications. So tons on benches all over. Nice way to generate a good sine wave uh, that we can use within our ham radio projects. Okay, so that that's kind of like the baseline. We've we've set the uh, we, we've uh, described where we started. Um, where the current uh, uh, challenges are with DDS signal generation, uh, that is the, the natural um, signal level roll-off as frequency increases, which is due in, in great part to the, uh, the sampling theorem. And um, we can thank Mr. Nyquist for that again. And also for um, um, it drops off because of other factors in amplifiers and measurement devices. So the big question is, and here's here's the nut for the, uh, the the crux of the issue here for tonight. How can you calc How can you correct for that? We're going to talk about calibrating it and compensating for it, but how can you actually control the level um, on a uh, on a dynamic in a dynamic way? And the uh, the answer that Joe and I have been approaching for a while, uh, for one reason or another, it, it's been taking us a while to get there. But we recently come to a successful um, solution for this, and it's probably not unique, but it's at least something that we kind of went through and learned on our, about ourselves, and we feel pretty uh, um, satisfied with uh, the path that we took. It has been a journey, and finally the uh, the result of it is being right here. And it's a simple one-chip type of feedback system, one chip and a, and a semiconductor um, feedback system that is able to control the DDS chip itself right on the DDS card. 
And um, in order to do that, uh, we had to borrow from a technique that was built into the DDS by analog devices. Um, the way that they generate uh, the internal, uh, they internally generate the signal is by means of a current source that um, directly relates to the output level, voltage level that is uh, generated by the chip on, on its output pin. And that uh, that current source is controlled by the R set resistor. Remember that R10 that I pointed out a, a minute ago. Well, I'm going to turn it over here to Joe in just a moment. But the, the way that we um, do this uh, adjustment, dynamic adjustment of output level um, in, a, in a controlled feedback type of uh, scenario is similar to the way that uh, analog devices recommends using the chip in an amplitude modulated uh, manner. If you were to connect a, 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 a baseband audio signal, i.e. your voice, for example, and with an appropriate interface uh, circuit to that R-set resistor, or at least to the R-set pin, you would be able to modulate the output level of that the DDS um, was producing. So the DDS would have a carrier at whatever programmed frequency it it had, and then modulated in an amplitude uh, and amplitude modulated manner, you would see the audio signal that was uh, imposed on the R-set uh, pin. Well, the same technique is what we were using, we are using in this circuit um, to control the output of the DDS uh, over frequency. Joe, do you want to take it a little bit from here and kind of dive into the ALC solution for the DDS60, and uh, and then we can kind of kind of talk about different all sorts of different dimensions of that. All right, thank you, George. Yeah, good setup. Yeah, as uh, as George pointed out, the uh, the output amplitude of the DDS chip and ultimately the board is set by controlling the resistance going to the R set in on the device. So what we do is to um, have a little feedback circuit that senses the uh, the amplitude of the RF out and adjusts dynamically the resistance of that uh, of that um, um, going to that pin so that we can set the amplitude. We uh, pick off the output uh, signal, the RF output from the uh, internal amplifier on the uh, on the DDS board. Send that to a simple diode detector. And then um, that sets a DC level that corresponds directly to the um, peak value of the output sine wave. We feed it then through uh, a couple op amps, which have a um, some feedback to linearize the uh, the voltage because we want to overcome the uh, diode nonlinearities in the detector and also to amplify it a little bit. That's the uh, first two sections of the uh, the op amp there. Then that DC level is fed into a um, third section of the op amp. Now. Uh, that's on the negative, the inverting input of the op amp, so that any increase in voltage there will decrease the output voltage of that third section of the op amp. At the same time, we have a, um, a DC level set potentiometer on the plus input. So what we do is we balance the two, um, set a, uh, a given DC level on the um, non-inverting input, pin 3, and that's compared with the, um, the feedback level in the op amp. The difference signal is then fed out of the op amp, and goes to the um, the FET, the MOSFET Q1. The net effect is that as the DC bias on the uh, on the MOSFET is varied, it varies the channel resistance of the FET, so that it varies the um, the level of the op amp. So any increase in output level. Anonymous, uh, please kill your mic. Okay, go to push the talk if you can, because we have a lot of feedback here. The person who joined us called Anonymous, could you please turn off your microphone? You are transmitting. Thanks so much. That really helps. Okay, indeed. And I hope it's not uh, a famous anonymous. At any rate, the net effect is that increases in output voltage are passed on to the um, uh, the FET, which then decrease the uh, current into the uh, DDS chip to uh, um, set the um, the output level and is balanced against the DC that's fed into a, a DDS level set potentiometer so that um, it tends to set the output level at a, um, a constant uh, constant level. There are other components around the op amp that set the uh, the DC gain, and there's a uh, capacitor on the um, uh, in the feedback loop that um, means that we uh, we 
control we slow down the control setting to the uh, DDS so that we're not uh, trying at a, at a real time uh, real time value to control the, uh, the the sine wave because that would really mess things up. What that does is it, it produces a DC level slowly relatively slowly varying relative to the sine wave so that um, we set the output level uh, to its desired value. Another point of interest here. You'll note in the green um, block in the DDS schematic there, the coupling capacitor for the, uh, the, the feedback detector is on the op-amp side of the, um, uh, of the DDS amplifier. I'm sorry, of the output resistor. The output resistor there is to set the resistance out of the um, uh, DDS board, the output impedance to 50 ohms. It's actually 51 ohms. We want to control the level on the um, on the amplifier side of the 50 ohm resistor so that the output is indeed 50 ohms. Any output uh, load put on there will reduce the output level, which is exactly what we wanted. If we controlled the output level on the uh, on the output side of that resistor, the resistor would have no effect. Uh, the thing would have a net uh, zero ohm output level. And in general, when we're using a signal generator to, to uh, test filters and such, we don't want that. We want the, uh, the output level to be 50 ohms. So that's the reason for uh, sensing the feedback. Uh, signal before the uh, or the output signal before the 50 ohm resistor. Uh, fast run through. Uh, any questions on that, please? Okay, I've either dazzled you with my brilliance or baffled you with something. Back to you, George. <laughs> oh, thanks, Joe. Um, and I might make mention that uh, that last point that you made is really interesting to me, and, and you know, I've been thinking about it. I've, just a bit of uh, kind of recounting some of how we came to it. when when we got the circuit working. I was like bouncing off the wall because for some period of time we have been not seeing the expected results, and we could not figure out why. When we go through the circuit, we didn't analyze it. We went through spice simulation. We went through several different types of interfaces for Q1. Instead of, as shown there, we went to, a, um, I guess it would be a true current source. But ultimately, it still wasn't working. Um, we got it working, and uh, we were taking the sense off of the, the, the raw output, the, the, the full output of the DDS-60. In other words, where that BNC connector is taking the actual output signal. And uh, then I was trying to figure out, we were, we were trying to figure out um, you know, how would this work into a 50 ohm load like uh, low pass filters and crystals uh, that are expecting or we want to show a 50 ohm load of the signal source. And uh, Joe pointed out that, yeah, the, the impedance of this is going to be zero. I said, huh? And I think in Joe's explanation and in, 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 in the, the bullets down below there in the theory of operation, it goes through to explain that. And it's almost logically, I guess, you know, for those of us who have uh, kind of read the ARRL manual or had some double E training, you know, when we draw a signal source, an ideal signal source, um, you know, a circle with a tilde in it, and, um, and we take the output of that, and along the top we put a resistor, and that output resistor is, in, is meant to indicate the resistance of the signal source, the impedance of the signal source, which means that the signal source itself is a pure zero-ohm type of uh, infinite drive kind of uh, capability uh, source. That's essentially what um, we have here in the DDS-60. If you were to take the that red capacitor and uh, instead of take that red capacitor out and instead use pin six of the D of the DDS sixty for not only the drive of the output but the, the sense. So that in essence means that that entire green box would be the signal source and uh, the DDS sixty card, and then you've got uh, it would be essentially a zero ohm type of thing, which could play havoc in some situations if if the device under test were expected to be a fifty ohm load. So. What we did is very, very conveniently, um, pin 7 is empty from a uh, previously long unused feature of the DDS-60. Pin 7 is empty. So in order to get this working with the DDS-60 card, we'll get all sorts of little documents and one-sheeters available for people who want to do it is uh, all you need to do is to uh, um, put a capacitor, a 0.1 capacitor, um, from the output of that uh, of the driving op amp, the 8008 that's shown there, uh, down to pin 7. So you tap off there, and that becomes the voltage sense, or the signal sense, that we take around through the loop to the RF detection, linearize it, amplify it, and then uh, combine it with uh, that last uh, op amp before it feeds the, uh, the MOSFET. For controlling the actual um, DDS level, Again, coming over onto the left-hand side of that green block is the R set signal. So um, all one needs to do is to remove that existing R10 
pin and put a put a um, a two wire ribbon cable up to that and tack it onto the pads and bring that down to the ALC circuit and uh, voila it uh, it goes the uh, a bit of a challenge and we're trying to understand how to exactly describe it or simply describe it but there is a balance that needs and Joe maybe you want to mention this uh, better than I am is that there you need to have a little bit of headroom overhead room or Headroom and a signal. You have to have more signal coming from the DDS card than you're ultimately going to control to, such that you have some room to apply the ALC uh, feedback circuit to in order to keep it at a constant level. Joe, could you put that in better terms? I, th I think you have the essence of it, George. Yeah, if you're going to control something, um, then you might have to um, jack the level up. It's always best to have a little bit of uh, extra signal available to um, to uh, trade off uh, for supplying the signal. By the way, the um, uh, 6.8, no, 3.3 uh, K resistor going to R set is, uh, and I'm rapidly trying to uh, go back to the schematic, the 3.3 uh, K resistor going back to R set uh, is intentionally uh, smaller than it is normally 6.8 K to give us that headroom. It gives about us gives us about a two to one signal headroom uh, to give us more signal level to control over. We didn't put a zero ohm resistor there because if something went haywire, we could jack the uh, DDS chip up to full output, and we really didn't think that was a good idea. So we uh, we chose a 3.3 to give the uh, the maximum output level from the chip as about twice what the uh, nominal level is on an un-ALC uh, DDS60. Yep, and the resultant output signal on the right-hand side out of the BNC um, is now about two volts peak to peak into 50 ohms. Uh, previously, one it was able to um, adjust the trim pot level control in the DDS60. If you go back up to the schematic for the DDS60, you would see where that is. Uh, you could achieve uh, just a tad over uh, four volts peak to peak, um, but uh, there's some of the headroom that we're talking about as well. So maybe there there can be some variations. Uh, maybe you can get a controlled level higher than two volts peak to peak into 50. Uh, but at least this is what we've been having some success with. So that's the ALC circuit. Um, we've searched around and there's all sorts of maybe some approaches that didn't seem to work out for us. And we haven't really seen any others that um, claim to have good good success with it. Um, and um, we're hoping that people are going to be able to give this a try. Of course, we're going to kind of whip up a little simple little circuit board and probably uh, call it a companion board or some kind of a daughter board that an existing DDS60 um, user could just plug this into this extra ALC board and achieve uh, um, uh, have have a nice uh, ALC controlled output. And also on that little extra board, there's some a couple of extra goodies that. Uh, that can be added to the circuit board too. That might make the DDS60 a little bit more useful standalone. But we'll see how that goes. Um, are there any questions? This was the this is the heart of the uh, the program, or half of the heart, the right half of the heart of the program. And uh, we've been doing a lot of talking. Um, is everybody? Uh, does anybody have any questions about this? George, just a note with my wacky sense of humor. If the DDS60 is already a daughter card, would that mean then the extra card, its sibling, would be a niece card? Ah, I thought you were going to say granddaughter card. And we've already had that term before. But you're right, a niece card, it, that's uh, a sibling-like type of card. That's good. I like that, Joe. Maybe we'll uh, give it a name, something like that, too, like the niece card. Um, Dave. AD7JT. Wake up a little bit over there, and we're going to get into some of your territory again here, Dave. And uh, in the next two pictures, um, we replicated again the uh, the roll-off of the DDS. But uh, can you explain what that, that picture is on the right, and how did you achieve that um, calibration um, of, the, of the DDS uh, signal? Uh, yeah, George, thanks. Uh, yeah, there's actually a couple ways to do this. The PHSNA has their way. Uh, when we were working on the NAT, we came up with another way. Essentially what we do, what we're looking for is a baseline to make our measurements against. And of course, the best baseline is 0 dBm. Uh, but when you look at the picture on the left, you see that we, we don't have a, we can't just subtract a number from it. So what the NAT does is if once you've loaded in the plot with with a shorting bar in there, if you would, where the output of the signal generator, the DDS60, goes right into the power meter, and then you get that curve like on the left, and you can uh, instruct the NAT to trap that data, and it loads it into a buffer, 
So then you can make another another scan, and what it does is it's a point by point. It subtracts what was uh, was buffered in the cal we call it the calibration buffer from the signal coming in, and then it it records that and plots that information, and that's what you see in the one on the right. So we, we've got our zero dB line. So now everything now when you put your device under test in there, be the low pass filter or return loss bridge or whatever, uh, you, you've got a baseline for it and you're measuring everything next to zero dBm. Uh, the only thing you're missing here is there may be some insertion loss, but uh, you're re generally when you're doing this kind of recording, you're not interested in that. You're interested in, in the differences, and it's pretty important to have a, a linear baseline like the one shown on the right to get in there. Now, there's a, another method of doing that that the PHSNA does. It's a fairly long, involved process. Uh, it involves doing things like getting five coefficients for a polynomial to uh, uh, to apply that to a curve fitting algorithm and you use Excel to do that it's not as bad as you sound but you got to enter in these five ugly numbers and uh, it, it does essentially the same thing uh, but this the, with the, the way we tried to do it with the net was to make it extremely simple and easy and uh, a friendly uh, interface if you would uh, so that's basically the two types of ways of doing it. This is the way we've done it here. You could, in fact, use both of them, although I'm not sure why you'd want to, but you could use both, both techniques. All right. And uh, I might mention, too, since if, if you're looking, if one is looking at the right-hand plot, um, you might say there there isn't anything there. But if you kind of look along the very top, this is the the point that Dave was making: is that the left hand plot was turned into the right hand plot by means of of um, of that compensating um, um, manner, and uh, resulting in the signal source having um, being a a level uh, level level from low frequency to high frequency. Um, Jack, uh, if, if you're still connected in and listening, um, the, uh, I think you, uh, you were the user or developer of the polynomial fit. And, and I'm wondering if you could comment on the calibration approach that you took in uh, for the PHSNA and its effectiveness and, and is it doing the job and such? Uh, yeah. Can you hear me? Sure can. Okay, very good. Uh, yeah, I think actually, I don't know whether Jim or Jerry, uh, N5IB or, or W5JH, uh, which one of them actually came up with the original concept of a polynomial fit. Um, and um, the, uh, it, it uh, worked pretty well for, for a, a general purpose uh, fitting, but it is a little bit onerous in terms of setting up initially and getting all of the coefficients in the right spot. Um, like we talked uh, tonight, uh, basically running a short circuit uh, across the, uh, the device under a test and running out the, the curve gives you a, a nice set of, of uh, data points. Um, you can use the uh, you can use the data from that and plug it into a statistics program. Um, I used MIDITAB at one point to generate mine because I didn't trust Excel. Uh, there was a reason for not trusting Excel. If you're not very careful, uh, you lose the uh, significant digits on the uh, the polynomial fit. Uh, basically, you dump your data sets into an X and Y columns in Excel and then tell it to do a, a, a an XY plot of those points and then add a regression line to that. And and under the regression line, you have all sorts of choices, power, exponential, and the one uh, we've been using is a polynomial. And you can use, uh, I played around with uh, three, four, five, six, seven uh, order polynomials, and uh, really uh, four or five gets a pretty good match of, of the, uh, the data set, uh, or at least with the, when I was doing it, it was with the 9830. Uh, but, uh, uh, as I mentioned, when I first ran it, uh, the problem was it didn't make sense because it wasn't zeroing it out. And I discovered that uh, Excel, you have to go into a little window and change the format of the equation that uh, is being generated. So it, and I put it into scientific notation uh, with an exponential value and uh, three or four significant figures, and then it works just fine. But uh, if you don't do that, you can get really screwed up with the calibration. Otherwise, it, um, you know, you got some big numbers to, to put into uh, Excel or into 
into the, uh, 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 depending on which version you're using, uh, it can go into an Excel spreadsheet that directly communicates with the PH uh, SNA, or you can go uh, into the uh, uh, Arduino setup and, uh, and modify the uh, coefficients directly there, or uh, Nick came up with another alternatives Windows uh, version that you can enter it in there. And I actually haven't done the Windows version, so I don't know exactly how, it's, how, how the data sets in. But uh, it, it does work, and it, uh, I think if uh, if you look at some of my original plots on a, on a, some of the filters I was running on a MOBO uh, uh, project uh, with their set of filters, you can see the, uh, the zero dBm line uh, actually turned out to be pretty close to zero. Go ahead. Oh, that's fine. That's great to hear. And thanks a lot for that uh, uh, the background on that, uh, Jack. And um, by the way, we could uh, Dave also ran some plots uh, that uh, are shown down below. The LPF1 plots. The one on the left is the NAT calibrated version uh, of his uh, nice seven uh, megahertz uh, filter, low pass filter. And the one on the right is the one that uses uh, the polynomial curve fit. And you can see that they look very, very similar in performance. So all things considered with the very, with the varying DDS source that we have, uh, you know, that we characterized up above, both calibration techniques um, appear to be doing a, doing a fine job. And, um, um, and uh, I think it, it comes down then to a matter of uh, ease and flexibility and which platform one is using. If you're using the, um, the NAT, um, it's, it's a straightforward uh, couple of steps. If you're using the, the PC, it's a little bit more step intensive, um, as, you, as you covered. Um, but it could be done. Uh, it can be done. Um, might be interesting to see if it could be simplified if, without going through the, the many steps of the caliber of the uh, polynomial curve fitting on the on the Excel uh, PC version of the uh, PHSNA. But um, I think uh, that's kind of the the fun part of the journey that we are all taking with these experimenting pro experimental projects that we've got on the bench. And um, thanks to Joe for nicely summarizing everything that we just talked about both the NAT version of calibrating and the linear um, or the polynomial curve fitting approach. Um, in fact, we also, Joe referenced, uh, put four references there on the whiteboard that uh, are, are quite instructive relative to this topic of calibrating, including, um, I think it was Jim, actually, um, Maybe it wasn't. Oh, I forgot. Now there was an original article of uh, that I think Jim did write. I'm not sure if we have it posted. Um, an article, just just a document that he wrote as far as how how to go through the the polynomial curve fitting. Um, but uh, N0SA, whom Dave referenced referenced up above earlier in the program, recently summarized it in uh, in reference three how I calibrated my PHSNA. So um, there's some great, uh, great documents here that you can kind of study or how a DDS chip itself can be corrected, uh, calibrated and made uh, made straight. So we can do some good measurements with it. And a um, Dave, AC2GL mentioned in the chat window um, there, or he made a comment that reminds me that the ALC circuit that we've uh, been talking about here is not unique to the DDS60 card. It's not unique to... Um, um, well, it, it's, it's not unique to the DDS60 card. It can be done with some of those inexpensive um, DDS cards that we're getting off of eBay these days coming from China, <laughs> the ones that have the wrong LPF and questionable lineage on, on the DDS chips themselves. But nonetheless, um, the same technique can be applied to any AD9850 or AD9851 uh, DDS chip from analog devices, mainly because, as Joe pointed out, it's the... Uh, it's the current source uh, on the chip that ultimately is used to set and then and thus control the output level, uh, the voltage output level created, uh, um, generated by the, the DDS chip. So any chip that uses that technique, um, in this case, it's only the 9850, 9851 that I'm aware of that actually do that. But it can be applied to other circuit boards um, in addition to the DDS60. All right, uh, Joe, kind of... Uh, I, we've kind of been all around the uh, all around the playing field here. Can can you help us out? Um, did we miss anything along the way? Is there something that you wanted to point out? Um, you know, from our our studies and working with the DDS card over the years. Oh shucks, <laughs> I think we pretty much covered anything. The only thing I wanted to mention is that uh, either of the compensation methods, um, either the one uh, using the, the poly polynomial uh, 
uh, correction curve or the point-by-point -point correction, either one of them uh, not only compensates for any amplitude difference in the DDS chip, but it also compensates for any uh, frequency dependence in the detector. Uh, it's generally not the case if you follow the, the um, W7ZOI um, detector design. Uh, it's not the case that that will vary much, at least over the frequencies we're talking about. But uh, component variations, some uh, layout differences, whatever, could affect the uh, frequency response of the detector. So either of the two um, uh, compensation methods will also compensate for any uh, frequency dependence in the, uh, in the detector that would not be compensated for in the uh, ALC circuit with the DDS. On the other hand, it's always nice to have a DDS that uh, is, uh, is very flat with frequency in the first place. Back to you, George. Yep, I, I hear what you're saying, and uh, it's uh, good to know. There's no free lunch, as they say, but uh, oftentimes if you can at least get a lot of it, uh, what you're looking to eat for, for lunch, I think that that's a good thing. And um, are there, uh, let's see, Craig, AA0ZZ, um, we started off with you, let's, let's kind of end it up here with you, Craig. Uh, um, what do you think of the, the approach here? Um, I, I Frankly, I don't know the 9854 uh, architecture. Um, is it something that could be applied there? Does it have a current uh, current source generated uh, or controlled output voltage on that chip? Okay, <clears throat> George, you, you bet it does. 9854 has an R set in a very similar way, and uh, I'm going to be looking at uh, applying the same kind of technique for that because we've had the same issue there, of course. In fact, we have two channels. Um, we have some additional problems there because uh, two channels of uh, filters and um, all the components of the output, the amplifiers. So we're going to have to, uh, you know, and there's only one R set, so we have to kind of take an average between them or something like that. And we still have other um, methods we're going to need to uh, to uh, make sure the two channels are equal. Uh, we've done manual uh, adjusting so far, but uh, that's something else that I really want to look at is getting some kind of automated technique for getting the two channels uh, equal because, of course, that's important for I and Q uh, modulation, demodulation. So, otherwise, uh, this is fascinating, George. You guys did a great job at explaining how that whole thing worked, and it's a, a really nice circuit. I really like it. So, thanks a lot for doing this. Oh, thank you for, for saying that. And, um, we got into some technical uh, depth here tonight, uh, maybe a little atypically. Uh, we don't normally, uh, we did not go too deep, but it certainly was specialized. Um, I, I applaud all of you who did uh, tune in here live and uh, to, to listen to what's going on. And, and uh, I think the nut of it is that uh, we have a way to control the DDS output um, and um, for all existing implementations of the AD9850 and 51, it certainly is worth uh, considering, um, giving the shot, you know, whipping it together in a little circuit of your own. Um, or, uh, as, as I said, uh, Joe and I are going to kind of produce a, um, a small little sibling card um, or a what would you call it a nice card that um, ultimately might be able to be used in some of these uh, some of the various uh, designs so um, um, are there any other oh and I just kind of leaned over and I looked at my voltage uh, my uh, my reforming voltage on my reforming workbench for the capacitor that I'm working on kind of getting back into shape and it's it's just working really nice I've got it up to its working voltage now of 300 volts I have a high voltage power supply on the bench and uh, the current is down into the uh, low microamp uh, area. And I think uh, that one section of the capacitor is working. I just have to do it on the other two. But it's funny how electronics can indeed uh, be reconstituted even after many, many years in a, of unuse or disuse, not being used in a, in a box. So that's uh, kind of coming around to the horn uh, there. Joe, um, want to take us home? Sure, George. Indeed. Uh, this has been uh, yet another fun session. We're we're working on the um, uh, on the coattails, shall we say, of the uh, the group uh, N5IB. Oh, I'm going to get things uh, screwed up here. Um, Jack W0FNQ and. Uh, Darn, I want to get his name right. Uh, yeah, I believe it's Jerry. Uh, and uh, Nick, the A5BDU, who have come up with the uh, PHSNA, the Poor Hams uh, Scalar Network Analyzer, a uh, handy device for uh, doing some RF uh, measurements by the hams. And uh, we dealt tonight with... Um, 
some of the uh, some of the tricks of the trade, so to speak, that uh, you use to uh, compensate were some of the uh, what would might look like inherent uh, uh, limitations in the device. In that, um, as the components in the PHSNA and now the uh, NAT, the Network Analyzer Terminal System, uh, fit together, it looks like there are some frequency dependencies in there. Uh, signal amplitudes vary with frequency and in order to get good uh, uh, results in doing measurements we presented a couple means for uh, dealing with these um, first was uh, something to stabilize the amplitude across frequency of a, a direct digital synthesizer uh, device it generates the signals to get a, a flat response with frequency with some simple add-on um, components and secondly there were a couple methods uh, one used by the NAT one used by the uh, the stock PHSNA folks to uh, compensate for uh, this frequency dependence. Um, we presented discussion of how all, all of these things work uh, and some uh, plots to justify uh, how well they work, along with a number of references that we, we recommend that you all dig into if you want to get more depth and uh, learn more about what's understand. If you want to be able to grasp uh, better what's uh, going on with this. Thank you all for uh, listening. I hope you enjoyed this show. We're, uh, we're trying to expand your uh, your knowledge base, give you, uh, give you something to work with, um, in line with popularizing some uh, very good projects from, uh, from the ham homebrewing community that are quite useful to the homebrewer. Uh, 73 from Joe and 2CX. And 73 from George and 2APB. And thanks for listening to the chat with the designers. We'll see you in two weeks, we think, and uh, for the next episode. And if you like this episode, let us know. If you have an idea of a focus that you'd like to have for coming episodes, let us know. This is driven by personal interests and projects that we all have in the bench. So if you'd like to see us going in, uh, um, get into certain grooves and techniques and measurement or operating or antennas or whatever, let us know. We may uh, we may surprise you and have that topic the next time. 73, all. Hey, George, this is Terry. Can uh, I ask you a quick question after you stop recording? Sure. I'll do that right now. <laughs>